This podcast contains spoilers, explicit language, and is not meant for anyone younger than 13. Do not harass any of the names mentioned in this episode. Two films seek wealth and fame will not be ignored, but will there be a reward in John vs. Spider-Man, The Amazing Duology? Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to John vs. Film. Last week was the Raimi Trilogy, and now we have the Mark Webb Duology for today's episode, also known as the Amazing Spider-Man movies, or how some people would like to say, non-Amazing Spider-Man movies, or just trash. And I, I can't really fault people for thinking poorly about this series as it felt very unnecessary at the time to reboot Spider-Man but considering how Sony has to make keep making Spider-Man movies to keep the rights it's uh Sony kind of had to at the same time and this is going to be a first in John versus film because I actually have notes I have some sort of organization i know this is weird but thankfully we're in like what the sixth episode yeah this is the sixth episode very early on and and i discovered to take notes now i didn't take notes during the movies i took them afterwards but i i'm keeping them simple i separate to i like versus i dislike slash criticisms and since this Movie franchise, very short movie franchise gets a lot of hate. Let, let's start off with the things I like about the Amazing Spider-Man movies. And I'm going to be talking about both as like I did with the Raimi, like with the Raimi trilogy. Just because, you know, again, No Way Home incorporating all of the Spider-Man live action movies kind of have to, even though nobody's listening right now. But anyway, what I like, first of all, I genuinely like Andrew Garfield's tenure as Spider-Man. I know some people really don't like his performance, but I would argue that the faults of the character lies within executive mandates. I don't even want to say writing team's fault, like maybe in the second movie, but Overall, I like this version of Peter, and I love Andrew Garfield's performance as Peter in these movies. Especially when he's Spider-Man. And I think, as much as we praise Toby, and by no means am I saying Toby was a bad Spider-Man, this is a different version of Peter. A more grounded Peter in a way, like... This Peter feels like he's someone that would be from 
our world to say. And again, like Andrew Garfield uh, plays greatly with, you know, the charismatic Spider-Man that we love from uh, all sort of media, from shows, games, and comics, to a very outsider Peter, a very awkward outsider Peter, one who didn't have a group of friends or a small niche. He didn't even really have a best friend growing up, you know, from the looks of it, and someone who's gone through some trauma. I I think Andrew Garfield pulls off this character very well. And I also kind of like relate to this version of Peter a bit more, uh, just a little bit, because again, I was, uh, I felt very much like an outsider. I mean, of course, I had my own small niche group of friends growing up in school, but even then there were moments where I didn't have them by my side. You know, just some moments, like just how school went for me. There were just times in the day where I couldn't hang out with them or anything like that. Or just even a year where I was separated from my friends. And yeah, like I definitely feel like that loner sometimes, you know, through the Parker aspect. I also love how they delve more into the science aspect of Peter Parker. I mean, they touched upon it in the Raimi trilogy with Norman Osborn and Peter's relationship and Otto Octavius's relationship to Peter in Spider-Man 2. But again, it felt like Peter's interest in science was not that important to the movie, but in these two movies, it feels it's very much more of part of Peter's character. And I absolutely like that decision to make, you know, to delve more into that science nerd aspect of Peter Parker. I also love that even though, like, uh, he's just taking, like, pictures of like class uh, students, like a, a very small detail in the first one when he's taking pictures, you know, for the yearbook is that he seems to take pride in with his photography in some sort. You know, like he generally seeks out more expensive characters. So I love these little tiny aspects to him. And of course, his version of Peter, I mean, not Peter, but Spider-Man, like I mentioned, is more charismatic and I like that. Like, there's a very much of a charm to Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. I love how he tries to empathize, or not very, not really empathize, but like he he generally is like he wants to be your friend, Peter, but he's not afraid to joke around a little bit. And I especially like that too. I like this version of Spider-Man, and I think that's one of the this uh, duology's strong points is Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. Another strong point is the relationship between Gwen and Peter. I felt I mean, this probably has to do with the real life romance between Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield at the time. But it, it does transfer well into these movies and you genuinely feel the chemistry between the two. And Gwen Stacy as a character, I I don't 
want to say she's an improvement of MJ, but she feels like an improvement over MJ. Like, it's weird because in one aspect she is, in the other aspect she isn't. I think MJ had like just stronger writing behind her in the Raimi trilogy, but Gwen here she has a more active role into the Spider-Man aspect as well as well as the Peter Parker aspect, other than just being a damsel in distress. In fact, she like actively tries to help Peter. That I think works to this movie's benefit and differentiating between Gwen Stacy and MJ. And another thing is that Gwen Stacy being a, a science nerd, that was taken from Spectacular Spider-Man. And that, I think, was a great decision on the creative team's part. Because, again, you got MJ, who's the girl next go door. <clears throat> I just said gore. Yeah, the girl next gore. Ooh, that, that sounds like a cheesy horror movie from the 70s. I would totally watch that. But anyways, MJ was the popular girl, but here we get someone who can relate to Peter's interests, and I think it was definitely a needed thing to differentiate the... like, make Gwen not MJ. The action, for the most part, is... I think it's really great. Even though there's not these grandiose sets to say, it is a very tight action. Uh, one of the standout action scenes from the first one was definitely the school fight in the hallway. I love how in that version, Peter Parker, or at least in that battle, Peter Parker, his fighting style mimic those of a spider you know, crawling over, you know, all around the lizard. I, I love that. You know, it was very tight action. I also want to give a shout out to the action scene in Times Square in the second one. That slow-mo shot was actually very well executed. It was very necessary for us as an audience to see <laughs> the situation in slow-mo. It was like, okay, Peter has to stop the car and he has to stop Peter people from touching the railings from getting electrocuted like there's a lot of things that if we didn't get that slow-mo we would be so confused as to be like okay what's going on you know so the action is very much tight and i know this may be controversial this is a very much of a hot take but i like this version of uncle ben and aunt may more than I do than the Raimi trilogy. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with the Raimi trilogy's version of, you know, Uncle Ben and Aunt May. They are actually very respectful to the source material. And yeah, they have that, you know, grandparent feel about them because they are, you know, older characters. But I like this more grounded, more realistic take with them in a sense that. You definitely, again, it's going back to that these characters feel like they are from the real world, in a sense. You know, and that's what I mean by grounded. I don't mean, like, everything about the Amazing Spider-Man movies are grounded in reality. But I do feel the characters 
how their personalities and their emotions, they are very much grounded in that aspect. And just seeing Uncle Ben, especially, I love his like behavior. You know, he reminds me of, you know, my folks to an extent, just, you know, like he would like joke around, you know, there's just these little tiny things like the meatloaf, like Uncle Ben accidentally revealing like, yeah, nobody likes your meatloaf. What? And they just being like, what? You know, I felt like their performance as well was truly great. And yeah, I wish we kind of, honestly, I wish we've got more of these, like this version of Uncle Ben and Aunt May. And to some extent, I like the more grounded feel, like I've mentioned before with the characters. Um, it's not to detract from what Raimi did and the previous movies. I hate to make these comparisons to the Raimi trilogy, but I think everybody does when talking about you know, Amazing Spider-Man. And I, I just got to get to say again, here, here, okay, you know, I'm just going to set out right here. What Raimi was trying to do and what Mark Webb was trying to do were two different things. You know, Raimi was more trying to respect the source material and trying to make it feel more like the comics and not necessarily caring about what is realistic or not. While Mark Webb, he wants to take the character into a more grounded, realistic feel. Not necessarily with the science fiction aspects with, you know, the lizard, the electro, but more so with the characters. And I think, in the at least in the first one, that was executed properly. Cinematography, um, if it wasn't, I'll, I'll get to the editing and my criticisms, my critiques, as you may say. But I think the cinematography here was pretty good, especially during the swinging parts of one and two. That's the one thing that the MCU Spidey hasn't really done very well is the, you know, just swinging through the city, getting those awe-inspiring moments. But nevertheless, and even in the action, like, I don't feel confused about what's going on screen, except for one part one part in the duology, but we'll get to there. We'll get to there. Don't worry. But yeah, overall, I think, you know, visually that it looks good. I like the shots and the cinematography. I do love an amazing Spider-Man two and one. I just, but there's only a little bit of it in one with the bridge scene and, the cranes helping uh, Spidey swing to Oscorp building. But mostly in two, when we got that montage with Spider-Man interacting with New Yorkers, I think that's great. That's an aspect to Spider-Man's character that felt, you know, very much like who Spider-Man is. Spider-Man isn't the, you know, godlike hero that saves the world every day. No, he's the 
hero of the streets who, you know, he helps out the little guy. He helps out the average citizen. Like, I love the moment where he, you know, stops a kid from being bullied. He doesn't beat up the bullies, but he, he his presence alone just gets the bullies to run away. And then he just stays there to help the cheer up the kid who just got bullied and even helps fix his, you know, wind turbine. And, you know, and shows like, oh my goodness, really? Wow, that's amazing. You did this. That's awesome. I, I love it's just those low moments that it's like that makes this version of Spider-Man feel amazing. I, I know. I know. I'll step out. You know, you can stop listening to the podcast now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But but please don't stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> I, I got more things to say. Don't worry. Don't worry, for those of you who don't like these movies, I'll get to there, but I, I gotta talk about the things I like first. Please, just just stay there. Stay there, okay? Okay, are we good? Are we good? I, I hope we're good. But, yeah, and uh, even when... <laughs> I like the scene where uh, Peter, like, Spider-Man is, like, has a cold and he's trying to get cold medicine, and of course, uh, that's when the store is getting robbed and he has to stop uh, the crook from you know there and so then he checks out the medicine and the guy's like the cashier's like you're Spider-Man and Peter's like yeah I'm I'm Spider-Man I'm (laughs) Spider-Man he just like he's so stricken with the cold It, it was kind of funny and that brings me to another point. I actually like some of the comedy here. Now, one thing about this movie series that you gotta admit, it's it's pretty quotable, especially too. <laughs> like, it's like, Peter, what happened to your face? Oh, I was just cleaning the chimney. But we don't have a chimney. What? <laughs> like, the just those... Again, those little moments, and I think again that part of it is Andrew Garfield's delivery on those. He he excels from switching from that charismatic, you know, Spidey to the awkward, you know, Peter Parker who's trying to keep his secret identity from his aunt. I I like that. Uh, and let's get to. Another positive for Amazing Spider-Man 2. I know, I know, I'm, I'm liking something that everybody should hate. Oh no. But I like Electro's performance and character in Amazing Spider-Man 2. I was, I was entertained by Electro. You know, definitely. And this might be a more subjective matter. But again, with Electro... This is my birthday. I'm gonna blow out the candles. <laughs> you know, or just, just stupid moments like that. In a subjective matter, I was entertained. But one thing that I think was actually really great was the use of music for Electro. I I love the lyrics matching with what's going on with Electro's head. Like we get this, uh, like we know from. What we've seen before he's Electro. Forgive 
Max, I think his name was Max. Sorry, I know I'm being a fake Spider-Man fan right now, but I have to look up his name real quick. Electro name. Yeah, Max Dillon. Okay, I was right. I was right. Don't cancel me, please. I, I'm a real Spidey fan. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. I, I knew it was Max all along. I was just testing you. But yeah, I we get in Amazing Spider-Man 2, we know that Max is he's mentally unhinged or unstable would be the way to it. Like, we definitely like know that he's not all there. And I love how the music for him reflects that and having you know, that dubstep music from one feeling very very much like Electro or at least in this one, like Jamie Foxx's version of Electro. But I also love, again, the lyrics matching of what his thoughts are. Like, the lyrics are what's in his head. I I love that. I genuinely love that being a thing. Having the music be so integral to the story, or at least to a character. Or it's like, arc and whatnot. I, I, that's good filmmaking. Genuinely, I believe that is good filmmaking right there. And I have to say, again, one thing I like about in that scene of Amazing Spider-Man 2 is that when Spider-Man shows up to confront Electro, his first instinct was not to go beat up Sparkles, but it was actually to try to empathize and to de-escalate the situation. It was only the, it was the cops that escalated the situation. So I, that was a good move on Amazing Spider-Man 2's part. And again, I gotta mention why my friends the name Sparkles. That's from Spider-Man, and I also love that part of Spider-Man, especially in two, where Spider-Man is annoying. <laughs> he is very much annoying to villains. And that's part of the charm to Spider-Man, in my opinion, is that his jokes annoy the loving crap out of the villains. Now, going back to Amazing Spider-Man 1, I have to say, I genuinely like Flash's development. Flash, as a character, feels a bit more fleshed out. Like We got a little bit of Flash Thompson in the first one, but he wasn't really a major thing. And even here, he's not really that major. But I love to see the arc. Because in the first Raimi movie, Flash was just the bully. There was nothing much to him. But here we get... he Flash is still a bully. At least at the beginning of the movie. But what I really like is after Uncle Ben's death... I know I, I've been getting into spoilers, but hey, I have I have a disclaimer in the description, so I'm sorry. You you gotta gotta read that, and also I gotta put it in the beginning of the episode. So hey, if if I put the disclaimer at the beginning of the episode, don't get mad at me. Don't get mad. All right, you you were warned. But anyway, I know Uncle Ben's death. Very much a spoiler. Nobody saw that coming. It's not like it's an important part to Peter Parker's character or anything. But again, 
going back to Flash, what Flash does, like, we see that Flash is not trying to bully Peter after Uncle Ben's death. He genuinely wants to try to empathize and help Peter. I love that, you know, moment where he tries to confront Peter after the death instead of, like, when Peter, like, puts Flash to the locker, Flash doesn't retaliate and try to, like, oh, you think, it's like, he doesn't try to punch him or anything. He doesn't make fun of him. You know, Flash genuinely tries to be a good person here. And that's one thing I like about this version of Flash Terms, and I think is very much understanding of the character, is that even though Flash, like, okay, you can argue, like, in the you know, very early days, Flash was the one-dimensional jock character, but as time has moved on, you get under, more of an understanding in the comics and other media that Flash is more than just a bully. You know, and I love that, you know, I think they get that Flash, even though he's a bully, he's not a horrible human being at the core. Like, he knows his limits, and he knows that, like, he knows when not to be the bully. And I think that's another aspect that was taken from Spectacular Spider-Man, because there was a moment where Aunt May was in the hospital, and at that point, we've only seen Flash as the bully, but in that moment, Flash is not trying to antagonize Peter. He's just trying to be, you know, what Peter needs, or at least trying to empathize with him. And I love at the end of the movie and the beginning of Amazing Spider-Man 2, I believe, Flash has turned around and actually not only we get to see his Spider-Man fanboyism pop up in the end of one, we generally just see him be a nicer human being to Peter. And yeah, I love Flash, like that little development for Flash. All right, so I know that was 25, a little over 25 minutes of me praising these movies to many people's dislikes, I'm sure, if anyone's listening to this, of course. But don't worry, we've gone to to some criticisms, and yeah, I, I got some criticisms here. I, I have quite the list. Well, I mean quite the list, I mean it's probably maybe just as much or a little bit less than the things I like about these movies. But first of all, let, let's get the elephant in the room. I don't like the Sony execs who butted into these movies. Like, the problem with the Amazing Spider-Man movies is that it feels like the execs were definitely trying to butt in. They were very much... Well, like, they there was a mandate, and they were budging into places where they didn't need to be, and they didn't let the creatives be creative. They're like, no, you gotta put... Green Goblin in. No, you gotta put Electro in and a Rhino. You gotta do this. You gotta set up a cinematic universe. And yeah, the execs, I feel like these would have been better movies. Like 
wholeheartedly, they would have been better if the execs just butted out. If they kept their grubby little fingers out of the creative side, out of the production, to for <clears throat> all right, like out of the filmmaking part, I should say, not necessarily the production. Like they need to be part of the production because they're the producers and all that. But nevertheless, their filmmaking part, they need to butt out. And I feel bad for Mark Webb and Andrew Garfield and everyone who was genuinely trying to make the best movie they could, but they were they were definitely held back by the execs who whose interests were money. You know, I, I don't and yeah, you definitely get that sense, especially in two, that there there was definitely there was more stuff about money and we also know that at least for one that there was a lot of stuff that was cut out a lot you know for Kirk Connors and that was I believe because the execs wanted a shorter runtime which was not that was here's the thing I'm an advocate for long movies one of my favorite movies is three and a half hours long so I do not buy long movies i get why general audience might not like long movies but yeah it, it's just these poor decisions from the producers that really hurt these movies uh let's see i don't like one of the things i don't like about both movies is even though it's true to the comics to an extent i i just don't like the whole backstory for Peter, Peter's parents is just—it it does take away from the character being, you know, just average kid, and especially the part where it's like revealed that the reason why Peter was able to get spider powers was because it was his father's genes implemented into the spider's venom. And I think that's stupid. It makes it like, it takes away from the, oh, anyone could be Spider-Man. It could have been any, you know, one who got bitten, you know, and became Spider-Man. It it takes away from that. And, yeah, it felt very stupid. And again, the whole spy business thing, it's just, it makes Peter Parker less average and not just my opinion, but a lot of people's opinions. And it just it adds it adds more time, like more focus, like or it takes away focus from what needs focus in these movies. It takes away the time. It it really I feel like that part hurt these movies. I don't mind the first one, like at the beginning where Peter, you know, felt abandoned by his dad. I get that. But at the same time, again, that's just, it's one of those parts of the comics where it doesn't need to be translated. I don't like Norman Osborn in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Wanna know why? Because he's in one scene and then he dies. Pretty much, I don't, it's very much like he he gets to he's so one dimensional 
in this movie. You know, he's just the evil corporate businessman who was a shitty father <clears throat> and who was trying to be immortal for he, he's just evil guy. And it's just a disservice to Norman Osborne as a character, as as one of Spider Man's most infamous villains, maybe his arch nemesis, as some say. It's is a far cry from William Defoe's take as Norman Osborne. I don't it's not even the actor's fault. You know, for this, it's just they did Norman Osborne's character dirty in this movie. And I think one of the things that gets very much glossed over, like everyone focuses on the negative parts of Norman Osborn, but there is one, you know, positive aspect, like positive trait to Norman Osborn is that he does genuinely love his son, Harry, even though he might, you know, be a shitty father and he does, you know, shitty things like he constantly shows his disappointment. There is a side to Norman who genuinely cares for his son, even though he doesn't know what's best for him. But here he's like, oh, I'm not asking for forgiveness. You know, he he doesn't say like there is no part of him that loved his son in this movie. And. Yeah. And we're going to go more into Amazing Spider-Man 2. That's where a lot of the problems that I have come from. And the lack of a consistent theme or in Amazing Spider-Man 2, it just, again, this goes back to the execs putting their mandates on, but there is no consistent theme to Amazing Spider-Man 2. I don't know what the movie's trying to say. I don't like it, it jumps across from one to another. And this is maybe a problem with both movies that I've noticed is that there is a very much a scatterbrain focus. It jumps focus from one thing to another without resolution. And especially in two, again, it jump it jumps all over the place and we don't know like Peter's motives get shifted from one to another very quickly. We have a like too many plots in one movie that like, and it's not just main plot and side plot. It's very much like they were all trying to be the main plot, and you feel that congestion very bad, just like how I feel. My congestion last week when I was sick. I very much felt that congestion. But I think that congestion has to do with there has to be like a disagreement between Mark Webb, you know, and the execs. I think there was definitely like a control. You kind of feel, you know, the tug of war between what the execs want and what the director wants. Like, it was definitely that tug of war feeling. And that leads into my next criticism, the lack of a main villain in Amazing Spider-Man 2. At least in one, we got the main villain being the lizard, you know, with Kirk Connors. And 
that love for focus and there would have been more if sony didn't cut out important scenes but nevertheless what we got in amazing spider-man 2 was worse because there was not a main villain see i don't think there's an issue with there being multiple villains in a movie like take a look at into the spider-verse for example that has multiple villains it actually has its own version of the sinister six but that's executed great wanna why it's executed you know almost flawlessly it's because there was a main villain and that main villain was kingpin here though well, first of all, Rhino was never a main villain. And I feel like the marketing was very misleading to the Rhino's importance to the movie. And I don't even have an issue with Rhino being a henchman-like character. I think that was fine. But the problem is, there's no consensus of who's the main villain. Is it Harry? Is it Electro? Is it Oscorp? Who's to say? What's going on? That's the problem there. Is that multiple villains could have worked if there was a mastermind. And there was not. It it was very much a cluttered mess. And if I were to be honest, I would... If we had to like lose a villain for Amazing Spider-Man 2 to make it a better movie, I would... I would lose Electro, even though I like Electro's execution in Amazing Spider-Man 2. I think he was the least necessary out of the three villains. And I know it's weird because Rhino is arguably the least important, the least developed one. But Rhino, at the very essence, could have served the henchman-like, you know, he could have served served the henchman-esque villain more than Electro did. Because the problem with Electro is, again, he was a henchman also trying to be a main villain. And it didn't work out. It didn't work out to the movie's favor whatsoever. And I felt like there could have been, should have been more focus to Harry Osborn's take on the Goblin. If only that was executed <laughs> any with any competence, because my god, I do not like this version of Goblin. This was a... It was such a letdown by any means. Like, everything they did with the Goblin in this movie was absolutely horrible. It was... Like... Just, first of all, it came out of nowhere. The Electro fight felt like that was the climax battle. So it made, it felt so forced in with Goblin's inclusion. That's the weird thing. I feel like Harry Osborn, as becoming the Green Goblin, could have. It could have worked as being the main villain if given the proper, you know, care and attention. But guess what? The execs had their own mandates and they wanted both Electro and Goblin to be in the movie. And it doesn't work. And especially since Goblin 
like Harry Osborn as Goblin as the villain doesn't sh- like doesn't show up till the end. He doesn't become the Goblin till the near the end of the movie, which was horrible, horrible execution. And that fight felt needless, especially since again, Electro's fight that felt like that was the climactic battle. That was the battle, and there was like that point, you know, like we see Peter seeing Gwen's like uh, dad ghost throughout the movie, showing you know Peter's guilt, and it could have been like really better. Like it could have been great to have that battle end with Peter. Like you should, you could have just saved Goblin for the next movie, honestly. But no, they didn't. They forced him into this for a lame, very visually confusing battle, a very short battle between Peter and Harry that results in Gwen's death. And I'm not against with Gwen dying per se, but. It, that should have been saved for the third one, honestly. Because here, in this one, it felt like that Gwen should have been alive for the narrative if Electro's climactic battle was that. If that was a climactic battle, that should have been like disproved that, hey, it's alright, it's okay, you know. But again, no, it proves it kind of, like, Gwen's death kind of goes against a little bit of what the movie was going for, even though we don't know what the movie was going for. And, ah, uh, it's so frustrating. It makes me less comprehensive than I normally am. It makes me trip over my words very poorly, I might say. <laughs> and, ah, uh, just, even though it is beautiful, like the scene with Gwen falling and we see the web string. You know, Peter's web looking like a hand, even though that looked visually beautiful, it, it very much felt like a defeat. And very much, no, this had to be put in. This was something that was put in very last minute. And for the record, when I saw the trailers when for this movie, when it was coming out, I, I was like, oh, Gwen's dying. So... As soon as I saw Gwen Goblin, it, it was just like everything with how they executed that very poorly done. And I'm sure that had to be the executive mandate. Like that was like, no, Goblin has to be in there. And let's go into my final complaint is that the focus for the execs was to set up a cinematic universe, which... My goodness, what a what a dumb thing to focus on. Really, I feel like they were so focused on trying to be Marvel because the MCU was becoming popular, you know, during that time. I think this came out after Avengers Day. Sony wanted their own cinematic universe, but it was just Spider-Man. But it's like, just focus on making good movies. Just focus on making sequels. You don't have, it doesn't have to be, oh, 
that's that's the weird thing of making a Spider-Man cinematic universe. It's like, why? Just just make a Spider-Man. Just make Spider-Man movies, and I hope after the MCU we go back to not everything has to be connected. As much as it's fun for us, you know, nerds and theorists to be like, "Ooh, these movies are connected," and even to extend it's like, "Oh, it's nice to have." You know, these movies take place in one world. It gets old. Sometimes we just want a good movie or just a movie that's self-contained or just a small movie trilogy or series self-contained. We don't need a cinematic universe. And yeah, to focus, it, it was just uh, Amazing Spider-Man. All right. You know what? Let's go to my overall thoughts. Amazing Spider-Man has some good parts to it. Like, some genuinely good parts, but unfortunately it was doomed to fail. Sadly. And the reason why it was doomed to fail was the executives wanting their own cinematic universe to cash cow on. Money became too involved. It was too much. It was too... It took over the importance of the creative aspect. And... Yeah, the reason why it failed was the execs money grabbing. And that it's a shame because again, I see Andrew Garfield giving his, you know, a great performance to Peter. I see that they what they were trying to do at least in the first one with that more grounded feel and trying to do it their own take of Spider-Man, but the execs wouldn't let them. They they wouldn't let them be filmmakers. And that that's what makes Amazing Spider-Man duology frustrating to me and I'm sure everyone. But anyway, I've spent 45 minutes of my own self, my own thoughts talking about these movies. I think it's time for John versus Critics. And just uh let you know this might be one of the last times like i'm probably still going to john versus critics through out the rest of his movies like this month but after this month after the spider-man movies are done i'm not sure if i'm going to be doing the john versus critic part it's i think it's starting to it's starting to drain on me a little bit. And there's only so much you can do to make fun of a bad faith criticism for. I think I don't know. We'll see how it's going forward, but who knows? Maybe in the far future, if I still keep doing this podcast and people look back into these early episodes to be like, oh, hey, I want you to do that again. Maybe I will. But again, we'll see. It's just something. And part of the reason why I'm saying this is because I actually had, I actually had a difficult time finding reviews. I don't want. I would like to, you know, poke fun at. I think I only found two for this one. And also, I don't necessarily need to fluff out these podcasts. Like I'm finding out. Part of the reason I created John vs. Critic was to fluff out the podcast a little bit. But I don't know. I. I it's very early episodes. This is season one. <laughs> so anyway, here is John versus Critics.
Welcome back to John vs. Critics, the other segment of this podcast. And like I mentioned before, uh, I think finding the reviews for these two movies really threw me off on John vs. Critics. Because, well, the thing is, when I try to find reviews to jab at i i do aim towards negative reviews and the reason i do aim for like the very low tier reviews like the one stars half stars and all that is because that's where you can find a lot of bad faith reviews and that's the reviews i like to target those are the ones that are one easier to make fun of so there's that. And two, yeah, they're reviews made in bad faith, and it's easier to defend any film when a review's made in bad faith. So when it came to these two movies, I actually had real I had a struggle finding reviews to talk about. I found one for each movie. You know, just to go in line with what I did with last week's episode. But I was scrolling through a lot of the one-star reviews, bomb-tier reviews. They they were like very legit criticisms in there. It's it's one of those like no, okay, it's hard to really make fun of or jab at. It's it's one of those because I'll be like, okay, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, I agree with that. Especially Amazing Spider-Man too. Yeah. So I again, it was a legit struggle finding one where I'm like. Okay, yeah, let's make fun of this. But I found two. One from IMDb, the lovely, you know, source of the official, uh, uh, official ratings, I guess, user ratings that are very trustworthy, as everyone knows on the internet. Number one place for trusted user reviews and ratings, IMDb. And we got... One that I found through Rotten Tomatoes. Again, another uh, very accurate website on a film's quality. But the review, this was like a critic review of the first one. And here we go. Let's just start off right into the gates with this first review. Just simply titled Amazing Spider-Man. It's reviewed by Mark Sevlov. I believe, I hope I did not pronounce like mispronounce your name. And the website is from AustinChronicle.com. And this was ran back in July of 2012. So here we go. The amazing Spider Meh. Spider Meh. <laughs> This sounds like Eric Cartman. You know, this is the amazing spider me. You know, that that's I feel like that's some Cartman would say towards uh sp- like that's how he would call Spider Man. Spider Me. Anyway, is a better suited title for Marvel's reboot of Sam Raimi's original far superior trilogy. That I agree with, except for this isn't Marvel's reboot. This is Sony's. Remember, the thing is, 
at this point, the deal between Marvel Studios and Sony Pictures to make Spider-Man movies did not did not happen yet. This was before. This was Sony trying to make sure they don't lose the rights. But anyway, Brett Garfield taking over the role from Tobey Maguire redefines uh, redefines the arachno human Peter Parker as part put upon high school Mensk. M E N S C H. I'm gonna look that up. The classic. I don't know what this means, so let me look it up on Google while I'm recording. And let me look how to pronounce it. It's mensch. Mensch. A person of integrity and honor. Oh. Okay. So he's part high school person of integrity and honor and part unlikable dick. Oh, I agree as Spider-Man, he's a dick, but that's kind of his character. You know, like if you read the original comics, oops, sorry, I'm just adjusting, adjusting my laptop. But anyway, if you read a lot of the comics or even other stories or like just other media of Spider-Man, you know the Spider-Man can be a he can be a pretty big dick, even as Peter Parker. But that's part of his charm is that he's dick, so I, I can't agree that he's unlikable because I actually like this version of Andrew Garfield, but to each their own. There's precious little of Maguire's subtle subtlety on display here. However, what we get instead is something akin to an emo-based digital native with an urge to overcompensate for his more human shortcomings. Like, again, Peter, in the original, like, in the very first, like, original comics, he was very much a wallflower. You know, and that would be, I guess, the emo of, you know, back in the 60s. I'm very sorry. The train, I live right by a train, and apparently the train's being very noisy and going through when I'm trying to record. So I'm going to try to talk over it. I'm not going to edit it out. No, it's going to be too much of a pain in the butt. So apologies if you hear that. There's nothing I can do. I can't go out there and be Tobey Maguire, stop the train. That might actually disrupt the podcast a bit more. But anyways... Anyways, let me try to get through this. So, in response to that last statement with the human shortcomings bit, and I was mentioning again, like the original, Peter was a loner. He was pretty... He was pretty angsty. He was an angsty teen in those original comics. But even then... I, I wouldn't even call this Peter like version of Peter emo. Like <laughs> I I feel like the definition of emo has been lost on a lot of people and we just label loner as emo now. But again, I feel like 
him being an isolated loner is kind of Peter Parker's shtick originally. I mean, there's definitely different like uh, versions, like where he's had like a small group of friends, but even then, still he's it's Peter Parker versus the world essentially. Now, after that statement, he says, "In short, the character is a lot like the way Stan Lee first envisioned him." But the superhero's co-creator, Steve Ditko, would probably loathe this new, unsatisfying, hollow-feeling entry in the cinematic Marvel Universe. Okay, well, again, buddy, I think you're misinformed here. This, this, Spider-Man, Spider-Man is not part of the MCU. Now we get, that's next week's episode. And again, I'm going to try to talk over this train who loves to honk its horn. It's honking its horn for horn uh, for Spider Man. It really loves Spider Man. That's what it's doing. Again, it kind of sucks. I have to live right by a railroad crossing, but I, there's nothing I can do. So, and here's the thing: I don't get. I love when people are like, "Oh, the original creator would probably have hated this." Well, we don't know that for sure. And here's the thing, I've said a couple times throughout me going over this review that this Peter actually does take a lot from the original. I think he acknowledges it, but he's like, oh, no, wait, no, wait, I gotta, I gotta be dislikeful to this. So even though I say, oh, it's faithful to the way Stan Lee wrote it, it's not the way Steve Ditko would have liked this character. Again, we don't know for sure. Like, like unless there's an interview, somebody in the comments would, I would graciously love to see an interview with Steve Ditko on his thoughts about this movie before he passed away. I'm pretty sure, yeah, Steve Ditko passed away, right? Again, another trademark you know, Google search, woohoo. But yeah, he died in 2018. And the thing with Steve Ditko is, unlike Stanley, who Stanley like thrived in the limelight, Steve uh, Ditko was pretty much the I don't want any attention on me or whatnot. You know, and there was very much. A paradox with him where he's like, I want the credit, but I don't want the fame of being the co-creator of Spider-Man. You know, but because of his lack of being in the limelight, we will never know what his thoughts were on the first, like on the Amazing Spider-Man movie or even the Sam Raimi trilogy. At least not that I know of. And I just find it's funny that it's like, also the thing is about art. Art in general, it's supposed to be what your experience, what your feelings are that matter, not what the artist is like. And I'm coming from as an artist myself. I'm more curious on to what other people's interpretations on like my illustrations that I make or any other media I plan on making or have made. I'm more interested in their opinions i really don't want people like be like oh well 
it was my intention to do this. I mean, sure, it's important, but at the same time, it shouldn't be like, but hang on. Art is generally the viewers or the listeners or whatever's like the audiences. What's important is their interpretation, not the artist. If, if, if it was the artist, you know, interpretation that was the most important, then quite frankly, art would be boring. There wouldn't be discussions on it because it, it would just make art very objective at that point. It's like the whole Nightmare Before Christmas is a Halloween or Christmas movie. To me, it's both a Halloween and a Christmas movie. But no, because people went to, I think, the original director and the director said it's a Halloween movie. People are like, aha, it it's a Halloween movie. That's a fact. Like, no, there shouldn't be a fact about art or movie or anything. Anyway, I went on a little bit of a tangent. And we got a bit more of this review to talk about. This time out, Peter's scientist father has vanished under mysterious circumstances, leaving the young Mr. Parker in the care of Uncle Ben and Aunt May, been by that pesky spider once again while on the way to a laboratory. Peter finds himself able to suddenly take out a subway car full of thugs and walk on ceilings. His webbing, unlike Raimi's version, is not a naturally occurring metaphor for puberty. <laughs> <laughs> um, um. <laughs> okay. Uh, that that's that's a statement. <laughs> I I never thought of Peter's webs and the original Sam Raimi version were a metaphor for you know for puberty, especially since, well, you know, most, like, after, like, a lot, like, half of the movie, if the first one takes place after high school, and second and third movie, we see, we're watching Peter as an adult, as a college student. You know, I think we went past puberty a little bit, <laughs> so... I don't really see that, especially since, you know, in the comics, like you mentioned here in the review, he invents his web-slinging with spans himself, science genius that he is. You know, that that's the thing. That's from a lot of interpretations of the comics. That, that's from the comics. That's from other media. Like, that's the thing that the Sam Raimi trilogy was like, the, that's like they were the odd ones out with the, with the webs like have it being coming from spider-man himself and you gotta admit it's kind of a bit more disgusting but anyway continuing on he mentions nor does his web slinging have the giddy frightening orgasmic power seen to grand effect in Raimi's original I think that has to do with the editing I think there's moments where we, like, uh, when Spider-Man's going through that, like, swinging across those cranes, that was really cool. And we go to the next one, we see, I think the first one had some first-person viewpoint of Spidey webbing, 
like web swinging. Yeah, it did, but it was just very chopped up and edited out. I think that was a problem on the editing. I will grant you on there, but I think you're. I I think you're not giving the web slinging here enough credit. Anyway, this incar this incarnation of Spider Man, or as you say, Spider Man seems to be aimed at the generation that has come of age in the decade between Raimi's initial 2002 film and now. It has a pessimistic, I'm sorry, pessimistic, decidedly dark tone, which befits our age of self-perpetuating anxiety, but makes the overlong running time a total bummer. Like, the thing is, that's... Isn't that good for a character to adapt to the time? Like, to be able to adapt to the times? Isn't that a good thing? Like, isn't that a thing that will make the character last longer? And is the reason why Spider-Man has lasted as long as he has is because they were able to translate the stories to the modern age? You know, to different decades? And appeal to different audiences. I'm just saying. That's not a bad thing. That That's actually a pretty. Pretty decently good thing. Anyway. Gone too is Kristen Dunst. Who brought more life to the original series. Than anything in this reboot can. She's been replaced by Emma Stone's. Gwen Stacy. Parker's other main squeeze. You may recall. Stone lacks Dunst's porcelain vitality she comes off as the lesser of the two flames but does she though i mean like i i defend kristen dunce mj but you gotta admit she she had to be saved three times in the first one and twice in the combination of spider-man 2 and spider-man 3 so like five times she had to be saved from supervillains I'm like, if I'm remembering it right, I'm pretty sure. Okay, not supervillain because four times with a supervillain, one time with a group of thugs, so it was still five times she had to be saved. Gwen, Gwen is uh did not need saving really. Not in this first one. In fact, she was kind of a badass. And again, nothing wrong with like I love Kristen Dunst's portrayal of MJ. And I think Toby and Kristen's chemistry were good, but comparatively to Andrew and Emma's chemistry, holy crap! The amazing chemistry blows the Raimi chemistry out of the water. Like we definitely get a lot better chemistry between these two characters and the two actors. It's very much, it feels more natural and Gwen Stacy feels a more, a bit more dynamic character. Like she's more active, like, Oh, Hey, I'm actually trying to help save the city and not just be a damsel in distress. That That's the problem with the Raimi trilogy. It does, it does rely on that, cliche of 
damsel in distress a bit too much. It's fine once in a while. But here, Gwen is not a damsel in distress, and that's part of her charm. She's more active, and she's willing to sacrifice herself to help save the city. Anyway. Iphens, too, barely registers in his dual role as the one-armed mad scientist Dr. Kurt Connors, who, hoping to regenerate his lost limb and save humanity, Natch, pulls a Jekyll and Hyde and transforms himself into the lizard, highlighted by a particularly uninspired bit of CG-enhanced makeup. Even Dennis Leary, as Gwen's father the police chief, seems to be acting perfunctionally here. The crack and sizzle of his brilliant work on Rescue Me is nowhere in evidence. I think, again, you know, I mentioned this earlier, is that a lot of the, a lot of the good bits, a lot of the good bits were cut out. Like, we... That's the thing. Dr. Curtis... Like, I'm sorry, not Dr. Curtis. What a... What am I saying? Dr. Connors. He in this movie and he in other Spider-Man media and comics is a genuinely good person with good intentions. But his... But the problem is the lizard is... It is very much a Jekyll and Hyde like interpretation. And it's been like that since the comics. You know, it's the lizard, you know, that's the darker side to Connors. You know, that's the his drive for science. That's his, like, animalistic instincts coming in. Like, he wants to make the world a bunch of lizards. And I feel like we would have been more interested if the parts with Dr. Kirk Connors that actually fleshed out his character were a bit better here. And I think Dennis Leary did a good job as the police chief. It's just, I think the police chief had, it didn't have, the like what I'm trying to say is, I think he was not as well written as a character here. At least in my opinion, he seems a bit more generic, but I think the actor does a great job with the material he's given. Anyway, to cap off this one-and-a-half-star review, he says, I suppose by this point it's useless to complain about such things. The rapidly expanding Marvel Universe deflects critical analysis like Captain America's shield and deflects Hydra bullets. Can't say the nah, the nah word. On YouTube, at least. You know, even though really... <laughs> I guess, you know, anyway, I'm trying to appease the algorithm here, all right? But unless everywhere else just becomes um, better, but anyway, nevertheless, the recent, still in theaters, actually tag team superhero epic Marvel's The Avengers is so very much better than this dullish retread that I feel compelled to say that this Spider-Man is anything but amazing. So, you know, here's the thing. 
looking back at both movies now, you know, in 2021, I find myself finding The Amazing Spider-Man a bit more than The Avengers, the first one. And the thing was, back when The Avengers came out, it felt like a very much of an event. But now it feels like since everything from the MCU that has come out now, that first Avengers movie feels like very low tier Marvel, in my opinion. It does like a lot of the cinematography wasn't great. The lighting was kind of dull. They were mostly on the helicarrier. You know, there's a lot of more negatives that we like kind of blinded ourselves to, you know, at the time because we were so caught up in the spectacle of the Avengers, you know, just like having this big crossover superhero movie. But now that the MCU has had three more Avengers movies, a bunch more crossovers, it, it feels, it feels like it hasn't aged as well. And I'm not saying the amazing Spider-Man has aged gracefully, gracefully either. But I am saying I see a just a wee bit more effort on the Amazing Spider-Man's end here. But anyway, this wasn't necessarily a bad faith review, just a very overly critical review. But I want to thank Mark Savlov for this review of the Amazing Spider-Man. And now to finish things off, we got one last review. This one's shorter. This is from IMDb. The title is I Can't Believe They Killed Gwen Stacy Again. And it's revealed reviewed by Scramble Dog. By the way, warning, spoilers. <gasps> Even though the title just spoiled it. Anyway. So Scramble Dog, he goes on and says, Finally. The chance for Marvel to rectify their greatest mistake. And they blew it. Well, well, well no, no, no. They didn't rectify. They weren't trying to rectify one, one more day here. I'm hoping No Way Home does. Because apparently No Way Home looked at one more day and was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's a Shakespearean art. Obviously. <laughs> no. Which... And that I feel is one of one of Marvel's greatest mistakes. I think their other great, I think their greatest mistake now is that they're they're screwing up their comics and not really appealing to their audience. Like they're screwing up really bad at the comics end. But no, killing Gwen Stacy in the comics was not was not that. In fact, there's a part. There's another. There's a thing that they did with Grunt Stacy in the comics that I will not describe, but if you know about it, it involves Norman Osborn. I, I, that, I feel, is a lot bigger mistake than just having her killed in the comics. No. No, my good sir. It is not Marvel's greatest mistake. But, anyway, apparently they blew not killing Gwen Stacy off. Anyway, 
the reviewer goes on, Stone's Gwen Stacy is marvelous. She makes the movie. Frankly, I have no interest in this Spider-Man series from here on. Well, lucky for you, they they rebooted the Spider-Man series again. But, heh. Apparently, Gwen Stacy was the only redeemable part of this movie. According to this review, of course. Anyway, anyone beside Gwen will be a letdown. Oh, that that's not fair to MJ, Felicia Harding, Betty Brandt, Liz Allen, a bunch of, you know, those guys, you know, just, there's a lot more Spidey ladies than just Gwen Stacy. Everyone in the theater was pulling for Gwen to make it this time, but everyone left in a solemn mood. I mean, to be fair, a lot of us comic nerds, we kind of, we kind of saw it coming in the trailers. And you know what? You know what? You actually accidentally said a positive thing about this movie because you they've actually made us care for this move, like for this character and hoping that she would make it through, even though we kind of knew that she was going to die. And I mean, kind of do. I mean, they actually foreshadowed her death quite a bit throughout this movie. So I, I'm just saying, maybe isn't that a isn't that like the movie did a good job? I don't know. Let, let's see what else they have to say. There was no applause at the end of this movie. Terrible, terrible ending. I mean, that was kind of a cheap ending. But I think that was more of marketing's fault than anything else. But anyway, there was also the overuse of a boring Electro and not enough Green Goblin. I've mentioned my thoughts on the villains before, but the thing is, I was very entertained by Electro here. And you know, fair. Fair if you find that version of Electro boring, but you can't tell me that this version of Electro was worse than this version of Green Goblin. That 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 version of Green Goblin was was bad. Like really bad. I don't like that Green Goblin. Nobody does. Like every everybody like that Green Goblin was no. Was no no and no. The mystery of Pete's dad was was pretty much of a letdown, though the knowledge of his use of personal DNA explains why no one else benefited from the spider venom. Fair, but I guess that kind of rules out that Miles Morales is going to be appearing in the and the Amazing Spider-Man movies anytime soon, or that the Amazing Spider-Man movies are going to be having a third installment anytime soon. But whatever. But the main deal was. I, like many others, left the theater depressed and sad for a pointless death. We will miss Gwen Stacy, and this may be the end of the Spider-Man franchise. What? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> I don't think a bad movie or them killing Gwen Stacy is going to be the death of the franchise. That That's a bit... That's, that might be hyperbole. Like... Oh no, this character I like died. The franchise is ruined. It, it's like 
the Spider-Man franchise got away with killing off Peter Parker and still managed to survive. Hell, this franchise has gone away with one more day and still managed to survive. So, I'm sorry, I don't think Gwen Stacy dying in the movie is going to destroy the franchise. But, the reviewer asks, who made this terrible decision? D... They should go to a theater and watch the audience at the end of this movie. I mean, there was a lot of decisions, but again, this person is very much a Gwen Stacy, Gwen Stacy fanboy, Gwen Stacy simp, as kids today would call her. Oh my goodness, I sound I sound too old for my age. I'm I'm 25 and I sound like 35. Oh no. Oh no, I can feel the wrinkles coming in. Uh, but anyway, that's the end of this review. And I... Yeah, I I don't want to stop doing John vs. Critics. Or at least not right now. My hope is to eventually get John vs. Critics replaced. Like When I start having more of an audience, I want to transition the podcast to maybe a bit more of a live stream. That's my hope. But, and replace John versus Critic with like just more audience interaction. That's the hope. But yeah, for now, I'm just finding random reviews online. Random, negative, hopefully in bad faith reviews that I can make fun of. But anyway, that's it for this episode. I thank you for listening in to this long. And. Like always, follow me on the socials. I'm hoping by around the time this episode or the next episode comes out, I'll have the link to my website come like be in the description and all that. The reason I haven't so far is because I'm reworking the website and I'm going to be changing the domain name, the domain name soon. But yeah, follow me on my socials that I will barely update. But that's where I'm gonna. Like, if there's important updates or anything, follow me there. Uh, And yeah, thank you for listening, and I hope you guys have a fantastic day. Take care. On the next episode of John vs. Film, Spidey returns to the MCU just in time for Homecoming. Hopefully John's take isn't far from home. See you next time.